You're listening to the Ellis Rugby Podcast, the rugby heritage brand. Hi, welcome to today's Ellis Rugby Podcast. Uh, with me, I have uh, Dave Ellis, who um, who actually coached France Rugby Union for 11 years and had a great career coaching many uh, rugby union premiership uh, clubs as well as at international level. Uh, in addition to that, Dave's background is in rugby league uh, and he's also my brother. So we thought we'd have a chat, see how this goes really. Uh, Dave's, can you give us a quick overview of your career? Oh, I started off um, playing amateur rugby league and then going on into professional rugby league and then on to coaching in rugby league and finally finished off um, well the back end of my career has been involved for the last 20 years coaching um, rugby union at a professional level international level and club level so where was your first uh, sort of professional uh, break in rugby union well in rugby union um, it probably came when I was actually coaching rugby league I was um, assistant coach of Paris Saint-Germain in Super League and the guy who was in charge of the club at that time was a famous former French rugby union captain coach and scrum half, Jacques Farouks. The following season when I finished with Paris Saint-Germain, Jacques actually proposed um, a role with him coaching at um, Racing Club of France, which is now his Racing Metro. Yeah, and then from uh, Racing Metro, you were there what a couple of seasons, and then uh, moved on. No, just there one season, oh, and then right. and then I um, I actually um, applied for a job at Bordeaux, so I went down to Bordeaux um, on um, a conversation with with Jacques Farouks and one or two other people, and actually signed a two year contract at Bordeaux, but only stayed there one year, um, and during that period, what happened was Bernard Laporte took over as a French national coach and he offered me the opportunity to work with the French national side. At the same time, then I went back to England and began coaching Gloucester in the Premiership. So you had a, a joint role, part defence coach at Gloucester, but also international defence coach for France, I presume. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I also thought that was important because the fact that if you work in international level, you have 10 to 15 test to, uh, test match a season, you know, depending on whether it's a normal test match year or a World Cup year. Whereas I didn't think that was enough for me, enough games for me to sort of develop my my coaching strategies and that's why I was always involved with the club as well as the international team. It, it was a period when England had a particularly strong team with uh, sort of Johnny Wilkinson actually at the helm of that. Uh, but France equally had a great team and you had a lot of success in the Six Nations tournament. Yeah, we, France in 2002 were the first team to, um, to win a Grand Slam in the Six Nations prior, prior to... Um, I think he actually started off in the year 2000 in the Six Nations. Prior to that, it was the Five Nations. And um, England, during the during the late 90s of the, the five, five Nations Championship, the start of the Six Nations, England were, were very, very strong indeed. Yeah. So how many, how many tournaments did you win as a French defence coach and how many Grand Slams did you achieve? I actually won during a 10-11 um, 11 year period working... With the French national team, we won the Six Nations five times, outright five times, 
and three three grand slams. Fantastic. So then, then you went. Uh, you were at Gloucester at the time. I, I think it was with Philip Santandre. Is that in, correct? Yeah. Initially, um, I received a phone call from Bernard Laporte in. I think it was year two thousand when I was at Bordeaux, and he said that I would be. Um, I would I would expect to have a telephone conversation with Philippe Santandre, who had taken over at Gloucester. He wanted me to come back to England and work with Gloucester. Um, I wasn't too keen on doing it because I thought that the future looked fairly bright in England, but Bernard Laporte uh, insisted that it was important that I did that um, and also was guaranteed to continue continue working with the French national team as well. Yeah. So you're working at, at Gloucester during uh, Philippe's time uh, and also um, you then sort of developed actually quite a strong team at Gloucester and you enjoyed success there too also. Yeah, Philippe, um, when I initially went there, Philippe only let, only only stayed for one season uh, and then left um, due to certain circumstances and I continued working there with Nigel Melville, initially Nigel Melville and then afterwards with Nigel Melville and Dean Ryan. Philippe, what he did, he did a fantastic job in building a squad for the for the future, and I think that's one of his major assets as a as a manager. He did it also at Sale, and he he did it at um, at Toulon as well. Not always profiting from um, the work he'd done, uh, but the Gloucester team of the of the year two thousand and two thousand two thousand and three was was quite exceptional. That was a great team, really. You had uh, it it was a solid pack foundation. You had. Uh, Phil Vickery in the front row particularly and actually a strong back line you had a rugby league convert um, Henry Paul actually in the team as well um, what 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 did you actually win during that period I know you came top of the uh, championships um, but I believe it was uh, the cup tournament that you were actually successful in yeah initially we um, we actually won the first ever premiership trophy which um well, the previous season, I think Leicester had won it, finished top of the league, and then they changed it into the to the playoffs. And we beat Bristol um, in the final. Um, and then the following season, we went on to win the Power Gen Cup, and um, and also finished top of the table in the Premiership. But unfortunately, we got beat in the final of the Premiership by Wasps uh, that year. Yeah, and so from Gloucester, Dave, where did, where did you go on to next then? Um, Nigel Melville, with regards to the club situation, Nigel Melville decided to leave, um, to leave um, Gloucester, to further his career working in the United States. And what I decided to do then was um, was leave, and I actually went to work with Castle Olympic in uh, in the south of France. Yeah, and that was a good good period as well at Cast. Yeah, very good period. We had two very good seasons. We qualified for the Heineken Cup, and we had some. We always finished um, in the top six of the league, which was uh, quite an achievement for a club with not a real, not a real big budget. Yeah, and then from there, uh, I think you came back to England, was it, with London Irish? No, no. From there, what I did, I um, I left. Um, there was a lot of turmoil with with regards to the coaching staff at Cast. Um, I think they brought back um, one of the old coaches, um, Jeremy Davidson was there, and believe it or not, Mark McCall was there at the time, who mm -hmm. went on afterwards then to go to work with Saracens. 
what I did um, secured the end of the season with Cast, but prior to the end of the season, I went to Breve to work with Laurent Sen, who I'd previously worked with at Gloucester under Philippe Santandre and also at Cast Olympic to help save um, Breve from getting relegated. So, Dave, uh, then it was London Irish. Uh, you're working with uh, Toby Booth and Mike Cat. Um, what sort of relationship did you have with them and how did things go at uh, a great club uh, like London Irish? Yeah, it went very well indeed. Yeah, I d d uh, discovered Mike Cat as a coach, which was um, which was was really good. We we got on exceptionally well, <clears throat> and also with Toby Toby Booth, who has since gone on to be an exceptional coach. They were all learning the ropes, but you know they were they were quite intense, and we had some really good times. I remember we um, we had some fantastic games in the Heineken Cup where we we actually beat Leinster in um, in Dublin, which is is a very rare thing to do. We made, we got very close to making um, the last eight of the Heineken Cup, and did very well in the league. Yeah. So uh, again, you're jumping from uh, the UK over to uh, over the Channel to France, and it was back to France where you ended up uh, sort of linking up with former Gloucester boy Olivier Azam. Uh, and uh, the French international uh, Pierre Mignoni at Lyon. Uh, that was quite an interesting project because I think when you joined them, um, they were in the French first division, not in the Premiership. A lot of work to do, really, with them. Yeah, well, after leaving uh, London Irish, what I did, I, then I went on to work with France in the World Cup, in the 2011 World Cup. And after the World Cup, just sort of tried to take a bit of a break. Um, um, and after working with a spell with Nigel Melville, um, working with the Sevens in, in the United States for for a short period of time, I then um, got was contacted by Leon, who was sitting in mid-table in Prodideur with famous French internationals, um, Lionel Nally and Sebastian Chabal there. The club weren't, weren't making a great deal of progress. So I was invited in, um, spent oh, five years there, um, slowly but surely developing things. Coaches came and went. Um, stability then arrived with the arrival of Olivier Azam, um, who I'd worked with as a, as a player at Gloucester. Things were taking shape, and just after that, Olivier decided to leave to go to Oyonnax. And then in came Pierre Mignone. Um, it was... Um, it was an interesting time because there was lots of investment in the club but the people that were investing money in the club weren't really rugby rugby people and it took a lot of time to put the um to put the foundations in so that they can they could achieve the success that they've had fairly recently yeah two two things that we probably want to touch on are um, really important ones as well actually is um during the world cup of course with france um, you managed to, um, against all odds really, actually get them into the final where they played uh, New Zealand, um, you know, which was a tremendous achievement. How was the tournament for you? Because there was a lot of issues within the uh, French squad at that particular time. Oh, I think a lot of the issues were made up by a lot, a lot by the press. They tend to, um, any any issues in World Cups tend to throw, to throw back to the Football World Cup, which... Um, which was in South Africa where the French footballers refused to get off the bus. That's always a phrase that would be used by the um, by the by the French press and the press in general. 
there were there wasn't that many many problems behind the scenes obviously there was um a couple of performances that were below par and particularly the the loss to Tonga um, but the, the qualification was never in re any, any real doubt and I think people have got to understand that the pressures of being involved in a World Cup which goes on for about three months um, are quite intense and I think some of the young coaches that we had with the with the French team weren't used to that and it took some time for them to to overcome the problems. What do you think about the final against New Zealand? Oh, I, I saw a quote the other week, uh, which appeared in the Midi Olympic in France when they were interviewing uh, Orian Rougerie, and he said, "We probably didn't deserve to uh, be in the final, but we deserve to win the World Cup." Mm. And I think that just probably assesses really, really well um, how it was. You know, we'd got beaten by Tonga. And I remember, I remember asking to say a few words in in the dressing dressing rooms in Wellington after the Tonga defeat, and Dusutwa Terry Dusutwa asked me to say the odd word which I was allowed to do occasionally. I just said, "Listen," I said, "You've got beaten by Tonga. You've qualified for the World Cup. The rest of it, you know, that's 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 history now." I said, "Just imagine in seven days' time playing against England in the World Cup quarterfinal. <laughs> What's better than that for mm -hmm. a Frenchman?" And that was it. And from there on, we um, we took England apart tactically. We beat we beat Wales. Um, the famous game where um, the, the the Welsh captain Warburton was was sent off. But you know, I don't I don't think there was any particular doubt in either of those two games. Mm. And then on to the final, which was um, we you know the build up to the final was exceptional. You know, it's not not every day of your life you get the opportunity to go through something like that we received an unbelievable amount of criticism from major figures in the game so the motivation for the coaches was quite easy really it was just paper clippings all week on the wall through the week and I thought the French team were absolutely outstanding in the final and I've, not, I've never watched the whole game back through in uh, you know in the last sort of nine years but um there were there were certain incidents in that game which um, there, were, there were question marks left behind, and there's no doubt in my mind that um, France were the best team in the final by far. Do you think? Yeah, this is a bit of a, a difficult question, but do you think Richie McCaw should have been penalised with about 15 minutes to go? De I, decent shot for a French penalty. Well, I don't think I don't think it. That's the question you should be asking me. <laughs> I think there's millions and millions of people that will be able to give you that answer. Yeah. Uh, I think the you know the referee froze. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah, you've got to take the circumstances into situation. He was a young, a young referee. You know the I actually spoke with him during the week. Um, um, just just saw him in in the centre of Auckland. Just when I was walking about for having a cup of coffee with my son, and um, he looked terrified then. <laughs> so all the all the pressure he was under, you know, just imagine he gave us that decision, and France kicked the penalty to get in front. And there's no doubt whatsoever that if the French team had got in front, they'd have won the game. Yeah. Um, just uh, uh, finishing off on the international theme, um, you had a period uh, working for the All Blacks as a consultant. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. What happened was um, I became, or not close friends, but I knew quite well. Um, Wayne Smith, who was who coached at Northampton for a number of years, and um, it was in two thousand and five. Um, Wayne Smith had been working with the All Blacks, and 
there was the, the British Lions tour and um, so Clive Woodward had said that he was going to take the biggest squad of players the the best ever co um, um, English coaching um, British coaching staff to beat the All Blacks um, and um, obviously I threw my hat in the ring as a, as a Yorkshireman and a uh, you know, an Englishman, uh, it had been a fantastic opportunity to go pit, pit my wits against the, against the All Blacks. It never came through. And for whatever reason, um, I, was, I wasn't suitable for the role uh, of working with the British Lions. And that was announced in the newspapers. And I was still, I was still at Gloucester at the time. And I think we were playing a playoff game against um, Sale at Twickenham on this, um, the following weekend. And after the announcement in the press, I received a phone call and um, I answered the phone and he said, well, this guy with a bit of a Kiwi accent said to me, he said, you'd be disappointed about not getting selected as defence coach for the Lions. Um, and it was Graham Henry. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, he says, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, I've got a game at the weekend and then that's the season's finished. I've got then several weeks off before we go on tour with France to South Africa and um, Australia. And so he said to me, do you fancy coming working for the enemy? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I've been doing that with France for a number of years against against the English, so why not? And I went out there for several weeks, working with Graham Henry, uh, Wayne Smith and Steve Hansen on different scenarios, how the Lions would pick the teams, how they'd play, what tactics they'd have, how the defence. And we covered all posts during that period of time. And like they say, the rest is history. So can you just remind me of the final result, really? But how, how, did New Zealand win that series? Yeah, they won it three games to zero. Yeah, yeah three games to zero. And I, I think they conceded about, you know, three three or four tries in three test matches. Yeah, yeah I think and Dan Carter was on fire, actually, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, I think he was, he was exceptional in the, in the second test. Yeah. Um, but in general, the... Um, you know the um, the British Lions got caught in the headlights because of the lineouts, the tactics they were using, the the selection of players. We yeah. we just got it off to a tee. The first test, because that year um, Wales had won the Grand Slam, yeah. Um, and so I I said to the the All Blacks coaches that Woodward would be obliged to pick all the well as many Welsh players as possible in the first test, which he did. Um, Stephen Jones, I think Stephen Jones played 10, Johnny Wilkinson played 12, which was not the best defensive organisation. Um, they got beat and I said, you, I said if, the, if, if the All Blacks won the first test, then all the Welsh should be left out and they pick all the English players. And there was many, many different propositions that were put forward and, and they, all came, they all came to fruition um, in an, annihilation of... Um, the British Lions by the All Blacks. So m moving on, Dave, really, um, last um, sort of uh, couple of years, you finished at Lyon, uh, came back to the UK. Is it, you know, is it fair to say that, um, you know, you applied for a, a, a few jobs and uh, I didn't quite get them uh, and then decided to take up an unusual position sort of in uh, amateur rugby. Is that right? Yeah, what I, what I did, I, um, oh, I, I went for a few, I, I had chats at Wasps and went for an interview at Leicester, the Leicester club was in turmoil and I thought you know, I could give them a helping hand, get through it all. I did some consultancy work at, um, at Doncaster, at Rotherham, Rotherham Titans 
and I went over back to France doing some work over there with Richard Hill at Rouen and Ludovic Mercier was coaching at Chartres in, um, in, in northern France um, and I quite enjoyed doing that but I just needed a, a project to get my teeth into um, and my daughter she moved into the area down in um, near Lem Lemington Spa there was a local club that were looking for a coach a club called Kenilworth so I just thought well I'll spend some time at my daughter's and then do a little bit of coaching at amateur level just to get the just to get the hunger back I'd been involved in professional rugby union for 20 years non-stop club level international level so it's like 12 months of the year non-stop I just needed a bit of a a bit of a break but not from the sport just a bit of a break from the intensity but that must have been really interesting because it's going back to sort of grassroots level and actually using all that knowledge that you'd managed to gain from the professional game and the international game and actually bringing that to uh, uh, an amateur team uh, and actually putting the basics in place and you did absolutely unbelievably well with the club um, you know, uh, you know, from a success viewpoint. Yeah, I think what you've got to what you've got to look at when you go into places like that, all the experience you've got is uh, when you're working with international players, world class players. That you do you do something once, you tell a player once, and it's done. You know, people like Betson and and Dussetois were you know, a dream to work with. You know, because you do all the hard work and you put the details in. You tell them the details, talk them about it, and they do it. Well, when you the challenge for me was I didn't know anybody at the club, I didn't know my, my daughter actually started playing for the ladies team, uh, and that was one that was the thing that sort of got me involved. Um, I didn't know any of the players, I didn't know any of the officials. So the challenge was for me was that you know working at, at world class level, I know it sounds daft, but it's quite easy because once you're accepted and once you're competent, then you can do the job. But you work and work, you know, you work with an amateur club a guy turns up and he's done eight hours work and and he comes up for training you've got to keep the interest there and you've got to slowly but surely develop the players and drag them on and push them and you know see how far they can go um, with with Kenilworth we did that throughout the first and second season first season they were playing in Midlands Southwest um, I think that was the sixth level of, of, of rugby they won the league, they broke all the records, um, point scoring and, and league points and eventually won the um, the Intermediate National Cup final at Twickenham, um, which is the pinnacle of amateur rugby uh, culminating in a, in a superb final at Twickenham. Excellent. So, you know, thinking back on, all, on everything that you've done in your career so far, um, out of all those things, what was the biggest achievement? A Grand Slam, a World Cup final, you know, uh, uh, doing it, getting to the Cup final with Kenilworth. Out of all those, which was your biggest achievement? Oh, I, think, I think when you look at the trophy cabinet, uh, there's quite a few in there at the moment, but it's not it's not the winning the things um, that, are mo that are the most important. You know, they tend to, when you win... You win, a, you win a, a grand slam or you win a trophy or things like that. It's mainly relief or all the amount of work that you put in. And I think the, the most important thing is when you you win particular games that mean something. You know, I look back to probably two occasions. Um, one against England in 2002 when 
um, they were 12 months away from winning a World Cup they destroyed Ireland in the Six Nations and they progressively got better and better under under Sir Clive Woodward Wilkinson was was outstanding and they came to um, they came to um, Stade de France um, to win a, win a Grand Slam um, France was two games to go and France still had the opportunity to win a Grand Slam and what we did on that particular day is the famous day when Serge Betson destroyed Johnny Wilkinson and all that came down to one outstanding player outstanding. we worked very closely together to put an anti-Wilkinson plan in place um, it's probably one of the only games that you'll ever see where Johnny, Wilkins get, where Johnny Wilkinson gets taken off the field for not being injured mm. Um, that was Serge, presumably Serge Betson. Yeah, yeah, we had, I mean, we still got a really good relationship now and a friendship. Occasionally, we'll get together and with the final for Kenilworth at Twickenham, I, I gave Serge a ring and I said, "Could he come to our team hotel the night before the game to present the um, Kenilworth players with the jerseys?" And he did yeah, without hesitation. Yeah. yeah, great. Yeah. And the second one was without doubt the. Um, one that you was present at, uh, uh, yeah. at the quarter-final in the 2007 World Cup Millennium in Cardiff, Stadium, yes. Millennium Stadium, when when France beat the All Blacks 20 points to 18. Yeah, that was just an absolutely unbelievable day. You know, I was in the stands watching it and I saw New Zealand go uh, in front early doors. And my, my thought was with you all the time and I was mm. thinking, well, come on, France, as long as they don't get hammered by too many points and then gradually and gradually got into the game there was the Michelat break um, where I think it was Josian was it who was yeah, actually Josian. scored yeah. uh, and then you came back into the game and then defensively you were holding the guys up not allowing them to get quick ball it yeah. was a fantastic, uh, I think fantastic the, I think the interesting thing behind that was that the information which is you know I've never, never actually spoken public about it but the information I picked up with the All Blacks in 2005 um, I just put in what Jack Charlton calls his little black book I put that in my little black book and I said because what we did I, I told them how the, how the Lions would attack and defend but they also told me how the All Blacks would, would attack and defend as well in certain situations so I stored that in the little black book and I knew it had come um, it had come you know it had become useful further down the track and it did yeah and so that one that particular game was as a coach was very satisfying because all you you've already mentioned about certain things about where we tackled we knew the all blacks um, we knew how they played and they knew how we defended so we had to come up with probably two different two different systems of defence. We couldn't put part of it into into play in the first half because they recognise it and they were just such a fantastic team. They'd be able to change the play at half time. So what we did in the first half, we never played. We just kicked downfield and chased, yeah. and we just leg tackled. Yeah, you know, and providing we got to half time within seven to ten points, yeah. then we knew that we could sort things out. I think it was 13-3 at half time. Yeah, we yeah. came out in the second half and what we'd said was that in the second half we never tackled by the legs at all. Yeah, yeah. So all we were doing, we were going in, blocking players, 
they were committing three and four men into the rook yeah. and their attacking structures. It was, like, it was a, the choke tackle, really. Yeah, exactly. It, you know? And yeah. Ireland got the credit for it a few years later, I believe. Yeah. Anyway, just moving on, Dave. Uh, fantastic and really fascinating. Uh, got some quick-fire questions, really, that we'll try and uh, fly through. Um, first of all, because it's uh, an Ellis Rugby podcast, which is your favourite rugby shirt and why? Oh, I've got several. Um, I've got several. The one that I, that I really do like is the, the French Rugby League jersey, the tricolour jersey, which is based on the 1951 um, French team that beat the Aussies over there. But probably probably the best a lot is the Castleford jersey from the 1969-70 final. It's uh, the, the old traditional work jersey that Castleford never had ever wear, yeah. but apart from the finals, they won it. They've won it, I think they've won it three times and they've won the Challenge Cup for every time they've won it. Yeah, and that yeah. was the um, famous uh, Mal Rayleigh, Hardesty Hepworth. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I, was quite, I was quite fortunate as a youngster um, to get the opportunity to play to play a little bit with Castleford in the reserve team. Yeah. And I always remember um, going down and getting my kit and I got some white shorts and I got a pair of socks that they probably kept over from the... Uh, from the finals in them days because they were quite tight with the kit was a kit man <laughs> Albert Lund yeah. and um, you know they were my heroes Hardesty Hepworth uh, Mal Reilly and I can I can name the team yeah. I can name the Castleford team like you know like nowadays Legionite supports can name the famous Legionited team great team really right next question uh, who is your favourite ever player oof yeah, that's, that's quite difficult. What would you say in league union or? Well, uh, or if if you want to offer both, that's fine. Yeah. Um, oh. In league, oh. because because he was one of my heroes, would have to be Malcolm really. I yeah. just think he just he just had everything. He had the aggression, the skill, and he was a player that lived on the edge and, and he adapted yeah. adapted his style of play accordingly in a very brutal period of rugby league. Yeah, he was... Uh, a lot of people, you know, who were, who were sort of... You know, the younger guys, really, don't realise... You know, Mal Reilly's always got this tough man reputation, but actually when you saw him play... Yeah, he was. He was as hard as nails. But actually when you saw the guy play, he was one of the most skillful forwards I've seen. You know, ball in hand, and his kicking game mm. was just superb. And it's a real shame that um, maybe I'm looking on sort of the old days as being the the good old days. But you know, it's a real shame that nowadays, uh, you know, your lock forward uh, isn't a specialist position like it was then. Really, was one of the best. And his time at Cass, and then obviously. Uh, at Manly was fantastic really so yeah anyway that's me jumping off the track Union have you got a best player oh I've been involved with so many really as as, as a coach at club level international level you know I don't know Michelac was outstanding you know he's, he's just Tony Marsh and people like that but you know the, it's, it's probably a bit personal to me but um, Dussetois was I was very close to Dussetois, but the one, the one like I previously, the one I'm still in touch with now, is Serge Betson. Right, so on to the next question. Uh, who's the toughest player you've coached? And it can be league or union. 
toughest player I've coached. Ooh. A real hard man. Oh. It it probably it probably be after it'd have to be Jean Jacques Klinker. Yeah, yeah. A prop forward. Yeah, prop he was forward. a good player yeah. when he Klinker. Yeah. And actually, he actually started as rugby league player. Oh, did he? Yeah. And then went to he started as rugby league at. Uh, Mass d'Agenais, which is near Agen. He was only a little guy, actually. Yeah. He was cranker, wasn't he, yeah. as well? You know, he's what a prop forward guy. Yeah. 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 He, he actually played rugby league with Philippe Seller. Ah, oh, right. In yeah. the juniors at yeah. Mass d'Agenais. Uh, and, and, and I became close with Jean-Jacques as well. Yeah. Um, and he was like, he was just phenomenally a tough player. Yeah. yeah. Not, you know, not the most skillful, um, but strength. He was, a, he was actually a, an electrician for the local council. Yeah. And all of his days... Playing professionally still worked. Yeah, yeah. You know, incredible. So much strength. Yeah. Next question, right? Another difficult one. But which player do you think could cross over codes? Guys who are currently playing union who could uh, turn to league and actually uh, have a great career, and vice versa as well from uh, league over to union. Now you can have a forward and a back if you if you like. Um, so the league guy going from uh, from the game of rugby league over to the game of rugby union, who would you choose? Oh, there, I think there's, there's many because I, I still watch a lot of NRL. There's a young a young lad, um, well, I've watched a little bit, who was playing at South Sydney. Uh, but I thought, uh, Caelan Ponga. Ponga, yeah. yeah Caelan he's, Ponga. He's a great player. I think he's been he's actually been tapped up by the All Blacks. Yeah. yeah. He has signed a new contract though, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah he originally started off in. Um, uh, in Aussie rules, yeah, in Central Australia, and then he actually was picked up by uh, North Queensland Cowboys, where he played, yeah. and now he's he's moved down to um, to uh, Newcastle Knights. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. he's got yeah. a step that's very similar to mine. And I think I think to a certain extent he's very lethal as a fullback coming at the line. But I think if he, if he actually moved closer to the uh, defensive line, yeah, he's, he's got everything. Yeah. He's Did you hear that, by the way? I said he's got a step that's similar to mine. Oh. <laughs> uh, well, right. Is um, that outside your front door? <laughs> and then, uh, and then uh, the other way, really, from uh, from rugby union into rugby league. Oh, um, yeah. There's, there's 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 quite a few current players. Um, I think I think one one in particular. I mean, we're talking about very young players or older players. One player that I would like to have seen in rugby league, because there's no obligation to kick the ball, is someone like Johnny May. Yeah, I think Johnny May would have been outstanding in yeah. rugby league. Yeah. yeah, he's got this ability to, he's got this pace that you don't see coming. He's he's actually um, a version of um, Simbad James Simpson Daniel. Yeah, yeah. Who, who I coached at Gloucester, but he's like a foot taller yeah, yeah. and sort of you know. Two or three stone heavier, yeah. and I think he'd have been great because there's no obligation for him to kick the ball. He could he could run with the ball, and, yeah. and he's a fantastic finisher, yeah. Yeah. man, and exceptionally quick as yeah. well. Really. Yeah. So uh, looking back on on the teams, the best team that you've ever coached. Oh, you go through you go through spells as a coach where you go through you know troughs and. Whatever I think, I think the Gloucester team of two thousand and two, two thousand and three, yeah. um, up until you know, because we won Heineken Cup games against against Munster and lots of other. It was a short period of time where 
Vickery and Woodman as prop forward, and we had an outstanding team. And then I think the French team of 2000, uh, 2004, that period, where we'd where uh, England had come off the World Cup. 2004, we won the Grand Slam. Um, and then 2006, won the Six Nations. 2007. So in the mid 2000s, yeah, yeah. the French team was just, you know, yeah. there was those youngsters coming through, there was old guys still in there, you know. The back row of, of Man, Harry Norder, Kane Betson. Yeah, yeah, you know, you had, <clears throat> you had probably four, five or six international world class back rowers. You had Chabal struggled to get into the team. You know, yeah, just, yeah. No, no great yeah. teams, absolutely. Yeah. Right, um, two more questions to go, Dave. Um, who's inspired your coaching career the most? Oh, I think to to inspire, you know, I've I've got I've got heroes when it comes to coaching, and the one you know the one the one guy that was always very important when you look at what he did in the game of rugby league was a guy called Jack Gibson. You know, people might not remember him. He was the famous Parramatta coach when they won three uh, premierships in the early 80s, back-to-back uh, -back with Sterling and Groth and Kenny and all the Ray Price and all the great players. And I, I was very fortunate to meet him in 2003, just after the, towards the end of the World Cup, I was invited by him to spend a day with him. It's, you know, it's like meeting God. Yeah. It was, just, it was just out. It was just an outstanding human being, and you know, he, he, what he said was that um, he'd, he'd taken coaching into a new concept because when he was, when he began as a coach, it was the committee that picked the team. Yeah. And what he said was, though, you're the committee, you pick the team, but if we lose, I get the sack. Yeah. Well, I said that's not right. Yeah. And he changed the whole of the concept, and and he, he you know, all the tackles, tackle shields, and conditioning. It was all, all, all because of Gibson. Yeah. And then, I only met him once, but it was that what he did in the game, which was, which was exceptional. Yeah, what, what was it? What was his famous saying after the uh, grand final? Was it something like "Ding dong, the witches"? Yeah, dead? "Ding dong, the witches dead." <laughs> We spoke about it a little bit, and he said, "Look, I could give a speech. Nobody remembered the speech, <laughs> but they will remember that." Yeah, one. yeah, yeah that was brilliant, awesome. And then finally, uh, the second one, which was the guy was really a mentor to me, particularly in the early days when I, when I was coaching. There was Maurice Bamford and one of one of the two others, and Jack Wilson. But the the guy was um, John Sheridan, who was um, a coach at Castleford, and when I first went. As a junior to Castleford, he he looked after me, and I um, eventually um, I eventually found my way back to working with him at Doncaster yeah. when we both played together. Yeah, yeah, no, he's a yeah. good good yeah. man, was John. Good man, and with him, with him, the, the thing with him is that when I used to, t he never he never drove, so I I'd pick him up and I take him to Weldon Road, which is a jungle these days, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. and so I sit next to him. And it was like sitting next to a guy that had already read, read the book and we were watching the film. Yeah, he knew his stuff, did oh. John. But, but I, what, what I liked about him, I, I wasn't as close as you were to him. You know, I was a player uh, sort of under uh, under his coaching. But what I liked about him, he was a nice bloke, really. Yeah, I mean, yeah. There's a lot to be said about that, really. Yeah, if you're a yeah. nice bloke, um, you know, you can carry most uh, professions off. Right, final one, Dave. Yeah. Final question. One young player. Um, who is a, 
uh, a good player at the moment who will turn to be a great player. Who will that be? And I mentioned Ponga earlier. Um, is there anybody else that you've seen that maybe is coming through uh, the ranks in the league or the union game that you think this guy's special? Um, I think I think there's quite a few in England, but there's no one particular player, young player, that you can that can finger. You know, in, in the England squad, they've all been together for quite a while. Um, in rugby league, um, there's a problem with league that they don't sort of let the youngsters come through quick enough. I think one of the um, one of the big surprises for me has been a, a guy called George Williams. Who's a, was a young youngster from Wigan. Yeah, he's running well at yeah, Canberra. Yeah, who went right out to moment, Canberra and yeah. Ricky Stewart yeah. has changed parts of his game, changed the side of the field he's played. He's yeah. he's been he's been outstanding. But but I'll go go back to to Ponga. If Ponga decides to go to Union, yeah. I think you'll see a player there which will be probably one of the all-time greats. Really, really. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be a Sonny Bill Williams of the uh, Yeah, and, but I, th I think what he'll do, he'll, he'll play more of a pivotal role. Um, I think he'll end up being being a 10 or a 12 because yeah. the you know the All Blacks like to have two ball-playing yeah, yeah, yeah. playing backs in the 10 and 12 position. Um, and I think that um, he'd have to go fairly quickly, he'd probably go after the World Cup of next year yeah, yeah, yeah. in the build-up to the 23 World Cup. Yeah. Great, that's brilliant. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for your time. Uh, hopefully, uh, you've enjoyed that uh, podcast. This is the first of what uh, will hopefully be many. Uh, and thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Ellis Rugby Podcast. Check out our Rugby Heritage clothing collections at ellisrugby.com.